Good morning, everybody. Good to be back with you. I think it's been about a year since I've been back to Parker Ford. So if you do not know me, my name is Justin. I am uh, the father of four daughters, four girls. And so even as I'm losing my hair up top, like literally, um, there's, there's a ton of blonde hair in my house right now. And that when I'm vacuuming and when my wife and I are cleaning up, it's just everywhere. And so that's been one of the trials of my life lately has been cleaning up uh, hair from, from our kids. Um, I've been at Cornerstone. I got saved at Cornerstone, um, 1999, so to speak. Um, the Lord moved in my heart around that time. I've been to the West Coast. My wife is from Bellingham, Washington. Her, her parents are actually visiting us right now for two weeks, so you can also be praying for me and for us as the in-laws are in for two weeks. Um, and we're glad to have them, but I'm sure there's relational dynamics that you can all identify with of having guests around for two weeks, uh, but we're glad to have them. So today, DJ said, so we're doing acts, but we're kind of doing acts. Where we're doing acts, but then we're sometimes taking these sidebars, is that correct? Where you go into Galatians and other stuff. And so he gave me a text, which is from Acts chapter 16, uh, the beginning of chapter 16, where it talks about... Um, uh, Paul uh, coming with uh, a bunch of people and Timothy joining him. He's like, so Justin, you can either preach on this text specifically or can you use this text as a catalyst to go into something else that the Lord would put in your heart. And so I'm going to do the latter. So I'm not preaching on Acts today. However, what I would like to talk about today, where I would uh, think that the Lord would have us, uh, is going to be in two parts. One is more of the mind in surveying the relationships of Paul and also this relationship of Paul and Timothy with one another. So just like a snapshot, just like who is Timothy, how did him and Paul interact? And then the second half of the message uh, is going to be a little bit more heart and soul-based. Um, and it has to do, I don't know how you engage Lent personally, uh, but this topic of friendships and of relationships during this time in my life uh, is something that the Lord is putting on my heart as far as reviewing um, and trying to understand, like, uh, how, how am I actually doing as a friend to others? How am I doing as a friend with others? And uh, I don't necessarily have answers that are at the end of this, this sermon as far as like, oh, hey, Paul, here are three easy steps that this is how you can be a friend to somebody or anything like that. But what I want us to do in entering into this is reflect on the friendships that we do have with one another. And so I'm going to ask us to take a moment and actually invite the Holy Spirit into um, that place because we can talk about the word, which is good, and we can have information about the word, but then when the gospel actually comes through us and it affects the person that we're looking at, the person that is right in front of us that we're face to face, that the gospel becomes something even more in those places. And so what I would ask you to do um, as we sit quiet just for, you know, 30 seconds, is there a relationship or has there been a relationship in your life that has just been rough the past couple months, maybe the past couple years? Um, maybe it has something to do with you. Maybe it has something to do with the other person. Uh, maybe it has to do with something that you don't really know what's going on. Maybe it has to do with a very distinct event that happened in there. Um, but um, I want you to actually think of a face. 
to put to the idea of a companion or the idea of a friend or the idea of a significant relationship that maybe is not what it had been in the past. Um, over the past three years, two years, me personally, I've had a lot of friends that have been close brothers and sisters with in the faith actually leave the faith. And it's been one of those things uh, over the past couple of years trying to figure out how do we interact in this space that we're in where there is this shared history of the Lord together, and yet for whatever reason, there's a million reasons, we're not on the same page of some very basic stuff. And some very, when I say very basic, I don't mean shallow. I mean very basic, but yet very deep things. How do I interact with them in light of the gospel in that? Is there some kind of... uh, relational divorce that has happened and a relationship is not the same? Is our relationship still the same and I need to be towards that person the exact same way I was before? How does pain and sorrow and me entering into their pain and sorrow enter while me still being my full self? While me still being who I am made to be in Christ? And so let us, uh, let's, if you would, if you would close your eyes for a minute. Don't fall asleep though, okay? Don't fall asleep. I'm always afraid when I tell people to close their eyes and meditate upon the Lord because he gives rest to the weary, but not right now. I want you to think of a single face in your life right now. And maybe you haven't talked to that person for a while. Maybe you talked to them this morning. Maybe that person is sitting next to you right now. But that there's some kind of um, relational dynamic change, learning, growth, devolving maybe. I don't know. And so let's just take a moment and uh, reflect on that person's face and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us uh, during the message today, Um, not just intellectually, but also in our practice of relationships. Holy God, we invite you to both um, inform our minds through the biblical text and the story, the narrative of scripture today. Uh, but we also ask that your spirit would lead us in transformation of our hearts. We pray especially in this season of Lent as we are examining ourselves and asking your spirit uh, to show us any uh, grievous way within us, God, that as we think about our relationships with our companions, whether they're maybe our spouse, parents, children, our friends, work acquaintances, God, that you would speak even into those places where like the rubber meets the road. And that God, would you give us wisdom and grace in those places? Would you give us both patience uh, and also courage to be present in those relationships and the way that you would desire us to be present, God? And I confess for myself and for many of us here that at times we don't know how to be in front of some people, that we don't know how to uh, fully present ourselves in light of you and in light of some relational dynamics. So we ask you to guide us in all things, in all things, Lord. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the people at Parker Ford said, amen. From Proverbs 18, a man with many unreliable friends may come to ruin, 
but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So in the Acts passage that we would be in today if I was preaching on that, but again, I'm not, um, we're coming out of Acts uh, 15, which is there was a, a rift between Paul and one of his companions. Which companion was that? Barnabas. Um, that is kind of on hold. We see later in the scriptures, maybe DJ recovered it, that there is some kind of reconciliation with Barnabas and uh, Paul around John Mark. But then we go into Acts 16. It says that Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. And so today we're going to do two things, like I said, we're going to do a snapshot, thinking about Paul and his companions, specifically the companion of Timothy, and then we're going to transfer over into a little bit of philosophy and a little bit of gospel thinking as far as what does it mean for us to be friends. Uh, uh, who, knows, who here knows who Scott McKnight is? He's a professor. Anybody? One per two people? Three people? Four? Okay, four people. So he's one of my favorite teachers, um, uh, a professor at Northern Seminary. And uh, three years ago, I sat in a lecture of him where he talked about Paul and companions that I actually recorded. So I referenced that earlier this week in preparation for the sermon. And I wanted to extract a quote that he said about what it means for us as people to love other people. And he says, we need to understand that God is love first and foremost. We need to see how God loves in order to understand how we are to love. We learn love by watching God love. So we love because God first loved us. When we define love in God's terms, which is covenant, affection takes second place. Not because God's love is not affection, because it is, but because first of all, it is a rugged commitment. So that's how he is defining covenant. A covenant is a rugged commitment. Covenant, rugged commitment. God loves in a rugged commitment to be with his people, to be for his people, and unto God's perfect design for that people, which is to be transformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God's love has presence, advocacy, and direction. This opens up the door to the nature of human relationships in the kingdom of God. So what he's saying here is that we can't just start with, well, how do we think about relationships? We need to first set our minds and our eyes on who Christ is and on who God is, and we need that to be the seedbed of all things. How has God loved us? How do we see God loving us in the scriptures? And from that aspect, from that point, from that origin point, then we kind of open up the door and like, how does that inform how I am supposed to love you? How are we supposed to love others? How are we supposed to love our neighbors? How are we even supposed to love our enemies? And so that's where we start, is in thinking about the love that God has for us. So keep that in the back of your mind as we're going through this. This is like a very human Sunday, and I mean that in the best possible way, where we think about human relationships and how the gospel informs that. But we want to first remember that the seeds of blessing and of transformation come from God himself. So on to... Um, Paul. So Paul was not a lone wolf, right? He had deep relational engagement with all sorts of people. He had times of solitude, and we see in Jesus's life even that there was a going out and a coming back, that there were the times of solitude, but there was also times of ministry and communion. But Paul, even though um, at times he was lonely, was not a person that wanted to be isolated. Isolation is not a fruit of the Spirit, 
It's not peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all that, and isolation as a fruit of the Spirit. And yet, especially in our day and age, isolation is so easy to to take part in. That even though we're sitting here now in a group of people, and we're around one another, um, even as we get up and go, how connected are we? And how connected are we to one another, even to the people we might live with on a day-to-day basis? One of the things that we see in Paul is that he had an interconnected network of friends, of companions, that he greatly desired to be with. Paul wrote a ton of letters in the New Testament. And yet, in many of those letters, what did he say? You know, I'm writing this letter because I can't be with you or the Lord has sent me somewhere else. But I long and I actually desire to be physically with you. And so there's all kinds of tools that we have today that we can connect with one another, whether it's with our cell phones or through Facebook or the, the Twitter, or whatever it is, where we can connect and use these things, and yet there's something very distinct in this face-to-face conversation, in this face-to-face connection that we need to have with one another. That there's something with being in proximity with one another that actually enlivens the gospel and makes the gospel real, rather than making it this intellectual endeavor. And I can minister to, to Josh through digital means, sure, but it is not the same thing. Me being connected to Josh means that I have to have some kind of proximity if we are going to grow in our relationship. Josh and I don't have a real proximity of relationship, to be honest, right? But those relationships that I do have a proximity of tend to grow more and more. So as we think about Paul and his companions, yes, there were a ton of letters that were being written. But his desire, as somebody that was following God who became flesh, was to be with the people. So in, in Acts, we see Paul has a ton of people that are with him, but also in his epistles, we see this. So if you look at the end of Romans chapter 16, there are 35 names at the end of that epistle that talk about the different people that Paul is connecting with, the different people that Paul has relationship with. And all these relationships are not the same. Some of these relationships are deeper than others. Others uh, are maybe like a, a new relationship but there are people that he wants to mention by name in his letters. These people are men and they're women, they're singles, they're individuals, they're married, they're family units, they're elderly, and they're young. That this interconnected network of friends, of companions that Paul has, crosses any kind of generational divides that we might have. It also crosses a whole bunch of different divides as far as socioeconomic divides. That, oh, I only hang out with people that are in my tax bracket. That wasn't the case with Paul, and that wasn't the case with even Jesus as we look at his life. So at times, Paul would uh, exercise uh, correct authority in being like a father figure to some of these churches, or to being an overseer to some of these churches, or to being somebody that was um, giving wisdom um, from somebody that has kind of been through the ringer. But other times, he also referenced those names in the scriptures with other terms that were more terms of endearment. So there's two ones in particular that uh, I want to highlight that Paul uses. Uh, Synergos. Everybody say synergos. So this is sometimes translated as helper. It's so nice to have a screen there, by the way. I'm so used to looking behind me. Uh, Synergos. So this is translated as a helper. But it also has more of this mutuality to the relationship. Somebody to be a fellow worker or a co-laborer. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody that was a fellow worker, co-laborer, with Paul was in the exact same relationship. 
It doesn't mean like, oh, this person had this duty and this person had the exact same duty. No, in being co-workers together in Christ, it might mean that Paul has one kind of ministry, but yet I am working, I am co-laboring with him, and we are of equal value and importance in that. And I know that I need Paul's ministry just as much as Paul knows he needs my ministry. And so there's this shared mutuality. It's not just this uh, hierarchical structure that Paul is talking about. He's talking about a co-laboring with one another. One of the other words that he used is agapetas. Agapetas. And now this is a much more affectionate term. And it's still in light of rugged commitment, but it means beloved. It means favorite. It means esteem. So when you greet each other here at Parker Ford, have you ever used these affectionate words with one another? Have you ever been like, Josh, you're my favorite? Beth, you are esteemed. Ah, you are awesome. Paul, don't punch me in the face for saying that. (laughs) Jen, beloved Jen, beloved Jen, it's great to see you this morning. There was not only this idea of uh, what are we doing together, but this idea of affection within the rugged commitment that Paul uses in his language to address other people with names and faces, just like There's people around you with names and with faces. And so one of the other things we see here in Paul's theology of relationship is that these other people, these 35 other people in the end of uh, Romans, they are not just pawns to Paul. They are not just pawns that Paul is using so Paul can build his own version of the kingdom. They are beloved. They are esteemed. They are his uh, uh, co-workers, his fellow workers. They are these broken image bearers that are redeemed and loved by God. They are companions on this journey with Jesus that Paul needed as the body of Christ. And Parker Ford, you need more than yourself. And we want to say all we need is Jesus. If we confess that, that all we need is Christ, by definition to say all we need is Christ means by Jesus' definition that you need other people and that you need the body of Christ in your life. We see in Paul this interconnected network of companions and uh, isolation is not a spiritual gift or a virtue in the Christian life. Even though it's a lot easier, right? It's a lot easier for me just to do my faith thing over here and then you can kind of do over there and we'll come, you know, we'll come together every now and then on a very, uh, on a good, good basis, but maybe a, a little bit on a surface standpoint, rather than getting into the muck with one another. In church, we can't do that. We need to be in the muck with one another. So one of Paul's closest companions was that of Timothy. So I'm sure you'll hear more about Timothy, or you might have even heard more about Timothy, depending on what DJ said, uh, in the rest of the book of Acts and in the letters that um, he helped Paul to write. So this is just a snapshot. This is information to stock the biblical narrative in your mind of of who Timothy was. So in Timothy, what we see is this great synergy of mission and of sonship because he was with Paul in mission in helping Paul to progress the kingdom of God, and yet he was also a dear companion of Paul. That again, he wasn't just a co-worker in which you might think of a co-worker. Now for me, and I don't want to put this on everybody else, when I think of a co-worker, especially 10 years ago, like they were buddies and everything, But when I left my job, our relationship kind of ended. 
Now, I'm not saying that's how it is with everybody, but there was kind of like this distance. Even though I spent eight to nine hours with that person, there wasn't this invitation into this other, more intimate part of my life. Why was that? Was it because, well, work is over here, pleasure is over here, let's segregate these different things and isolate parts of our lives rather than trying to live in the messiness of everything? Why, why was that? But in, in, in Paul and Timothy's relationship, we see the synergy of mission and identity together, of sonship and sentness. So Timothy came from a lineage of new Christian women. Both his mother and his grandmother were mentioned in the scriptures. They were Jewish Christians, but his father was an unbelieving Greek. And so he came from a multi-ethnic background And he had some kind of, according to the scriptures, some kind of background in the Jewish scriptures that probably his grandmother and his mother gave to him. And that became the seedbed of him coming to Jesus. And yet we see in Paul's letters how Paul talks to Timothy about, you know, Timothy, you are my son in the faith. Now, this is connotating the idea that Paul probably had a very distinct, uh, uh, important influence in Timothy's coming to faith in Christ. That while there was this great lineage of Christian women that maybe stocked the pond as far as the the Jewish and Hebrew scriptures, it was through Paul that Timothy came to the faith. And Timothy traveled all over in Acts with Paul and Silas and Erastus on their missionary journeys. And, And Timothy was very flexible. Okay, I don't mean like in a gymnast kind of way, but I mean in a way where um, sometimes Paul would be like, hey, Paul, Timothy, I need you to stay right here with me and co-labor with me right in this spot. Other times, he would use Timothy's flexibility to say, I want you to go ahead into the next city, and I want you to prepare the way for the gospel that we're going to bring there. Or, in Timothy being flexible, he would say, I want you to actually go back. I want you, we're going to leave from here, and I want you to go back to the place we just were because we just had some reports that that place isn't doing well. And so Timothy was very flexible in his ministry. And probably the most uh, notable thing that Timothy did that we see in the scriptures was the idea that Paul sent Timothy where? Did we talk about that yet? To Ephesus to pastor the church that Paul started in that region. And so that's where we get the letters of First and Second Timothy. But one of the most often overlooked, in, in my opinion, characteristics of Timothy is this fact that his name appears in half a dozen letters that Paul wrote. Not in the ending salutation, but in the beginning. Okay? So there's like, you know, that like in closing, this person says goodbye, and this person says goodbye, and I want you to say, you know, tell Byron we said hi, and all this, and tell that guy to send my coat. But Timothy actually appears with Paul in the opening greetings of six or seven different New Testament letters. And what this signifies is that there was some type of influence that Timothy had with Paul in the writing of these letters. So it wasn't, they were from Paul, no doubt, but it was almost like, uh, as Scott McKnight says, that, that Timothy was a dialogue partner in these letter writings. And so Timothy had this incredible influence in these letters to these churches that, that Paul was writing to. And this was part of his ministry, to be with Paul, so that Paul would not be alone, so that Paul would not be isolated. And as Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is writing to encourage these churches, it wasn't just Paul writing all these letters. 
that it was maybe sometimes by his hand or by Timothy's hand, but there was this dialogue with Timothy that influenced Paul. The scriptures tell us that Timothy had prophetic words spoken over him, that his character caused others to speak well of him, and that he was entrusted with the word of Christ. Timothy's name means honoring God or one who honors God. And so there's this interesting dynamic in my mind where we have Paul who calls Timothy what? A child in the faith. And yet we have Timothy that is also more than a child in the faith. So when I was listening to Dr. McKnight, I asked him this question. I was like, so how do you put these two things together? So if, let's say, uh, Josh is my spiritual mentor, okay? He raises me up in the faith because he's so far ahead of me. He's such a mature uh, believer, deep, and, 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 oh, man, that Josh guy. And he's raising me up like he brings me to faith. But then there starts to be this mutuality of relationship. A lot of us here know what that feels like if you're a parent or an older child, meaning like that you're kind of leaving your parents' house. Because there's this time when you're completely under your parents' guidance. And then what starts to happen? You start to grow. You start to get older. You start to have things that you can actually contribute to the family. And sometimes you can even contribute to the family better than your parent in some aspects can contribute. But I know I, and I would guess that a lot of us here have had some relational dynamic disagreements in our parent-child relationships as we have gotten older, where there's been a little bit of a conflict of like, well, you're, you're my dad's, well, you'll always be my boy, so you need to listen to me, which in honoring him to some degree, okay, but I'm not a 12-year-old boy anymore. I'm a 38-year-old man that has a family of his own that is seeking the Lord and maybe have something to add to this. So I asked Dr. McKnight, um, like, how, did this re- how do you think this relationship worked with Paul and Timothy? He said this, Timothy is not an understudy. He's Paul's most important dialogue partner in the composition of his letters. He's a bit of a shadow figure, sure, because he's behind Paul, but Paul yearns for Timothy to come back and to be with him. He needs Timothy to be around. Timothy might be the most significant, unknown, early Christian theologian. We shouldn't look at Timothy as this young guy that Paul was always nurturing along. He was a young guy that Paul nurtured along, and he moved rapidly enough that Paul thought he was a guy that he needed to be with him at all times. And so, Parker Ford, as we consider being the church, the church is in need of seasoned men and women of Christ that will come along us that are newer in the faith to raise us up. And that those that are newer in the faith need to follow and be discipled by them. But there also comes this time where we need to release those people that we are raising up and not hold on to them so that Beth and Paul, just an example, can truly and fully be who Christ is making them to be. Not as me as their mentor, not that I keep them boxed in because there might be a little bit of fear of letting them go, but to actually release disciples within our church and within our relationships is an important part of the kingdom of God growing here in Parker Ford and the kingdom of God growing uh, in the region that this church is serving. And so we see in Paul and Timothy's relationship, this companionship, but also this missional dynamic that is there. Okay, everybody still with me? Shake your head if you're falling asleep. So that was part one.
Now we're going to go into part two. So part one was more information. I mean, there's going to be information in this, obviously. About the, but now I want us to go back to that face we had when we asked the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. So part two, let's consider um, about our friendships and what are friendships and why are friendships. Uh, the Apostle Paul was brought up in Tarsus, which uh, is in modern-day Turkey, and he grew up in Jerusalem. And in this time, there was the Hellenization of, the, of many of the Jewish people. What that means is that the Greco-Roman influence was all around them, okay? They were a, uh, the Jewish people were people that were at home and not at home at the same time, that they were in their land and yet they were surrounded and even governed by the Romans who then were influenced by the Greeks that came before them. One of the most famous Greek philosophers was Aristotle. How many people have heard of Aristotle before? More people, Aristotle, than Scott McKnight. Okay, that's good. Um, he's, he's a famous philosophy guy. Um, his, his philosophy has shaped modern culture for better and for worse. Uh, but his influence is present both in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, and also in our day today. So I found it interesting in thinking about what was Aristotle's paradigm of friendship. Okay, and he did this paradigm in this way. He thought that there were three, I don't want to call them levels, but there were three sections that you would move through in a friendship. And all these are good. There's the useful, the pleasant, and the noble, and they would build off of one another. And he said that they, um, you know, to get to the noble, you actually needed to go through the useful and the pleasant to get to the noble. Again, this is just observationally. I'm not saying this is right or wrong. But I want you to think about your friendships and your relationships. So he would say that the, this, this first theory of friendship has to do with the useful. These relationships are good for something, providing some type of benefit, right? So in our day and age, it might be an employer, uh, a business partner. Uh, Brad, uh, when I go to the gym to pump iron, he's my, uh, he spots me as I'm lifting heavy weights. So that's a useful, a useful person in my life. You don't really do that. It's just an example. Um, but like a gym buddy, like I don't really hang out with my gym buddy, but I need somebody there so that when I'm, you know, getting big and buff, as you can see I am, that I don't drop all of that weight on me. It's useful to have a friend like that there at that time. Otherwise, I might crush my sternum or something like that. So these friends are useful. These friends happen where they are needed, these companions. The second one is that of the pleasant these relationships bring some type of pleasure by being in it. It could be through going out, eating, drinking, partying, dancing. Um, if you're into scrapbooking and you like to scrapbook, maybe it's scrapbooking. I don't know. It could be anything. Something that you enjoy doing, and by being with that person, you're getting some type of pleasure and enjoyment out of that relationship. It's not just about getting things done, but it's about giving and receiving enjoyment in the time that you have together. And these friendships happen where desired. So the useful one, like, there's, I need to have these friendships in order to do something. The second one is I want these in order to experience some kind of uh, pleasure. And then there's the third one in Aristotle's mind, this idea of the noble, the relationship that is valuable and has genuine intimacy and virtues of character that can be shared and developed together. In these friendships, the other wants good for the other for the sake of the other. And these friendships 
develop where time is invested. So if you were to look at these, philosophically speaking, and, and you and the Lord examine me and just, you know, show, show, me, show me what is, how would you define most of your relationships up here? And when I say most, don't hear me say um, that all of your relationships have to be the noble kind, because that would be, that's exhaust, that sounds exhausting to me. To be so, like, how many people are here at Parker for, let's say, 150. For me to have this in-depth, crazy deep, I know every single detail of the muck of 150 people. I'm an ambivert, which means I can both be an introvert and an extrovert. That is, like, I don't want that. And I don't think God necessarily, we have limits to who we are. And so when I say where most of your relationships at in here, I'm just saying, what are the points of your relationship? Are your relationships mostly about being useful, about being pleasurable? Do you have those relationships that Aristotle would say are noble? Those companions and those friendships. Where are we spending most of our time in, uh, in our relationships? So when I look at this personally, two sets of questions come up. The first one has to do with my own relationships. What kind of friends do I have in my life or even more importantly, what kind of friend am I? If I say I am Brad's friend, is it just because it's, there's something useful that I can get out of him? If I say I am Mike Morbius' friend, is it just because, man, when I look at him, I get this you know, enjoy, enjoyment of experience looking at his face? And again, we need, we need these relationships in our life uh, one way or another, but at, why am I in this relationship? Why am I in this friendship? Is, to get, is it always to get something from somebody? Is it always to gain some kind of enjoyment from them? When I consider those closest to me, is it still only out of utility or pleasure? And if one of those elements takes a hit for me, am I still there with them? So if all of a sudden my relationship with Mike that I thought was deep, all of a sudden it's not as pleasurable anymore. Mike's not really providing any kind of benefit to this relationship. Does that mean that I can leave? Does that mean that I can jam? Does that mean like that was good for that time, but um, you're, you're not really useful to me anymore? And is that what companionship and friendship is? These are all serious questions that is like, well, of course, maybe it's not like that, but yet, am I acting that way in my relationships? Are you acting that way in your relationships? In being a church leader, have I deceived myself in thinking that some of my noble friendships are actually just utility and pleasure in disguise? Having the appearance of deeper relationship but lacking genuine intimacy. Like, am I fooling myself that I actually have these noble um, relationships? Second set of questions that this brings up for me is, what do I do with the gospel in this? Um, so one thing that we can see in Paul's relationships with his companions is that it transcended societal, societal norms. So Aristotle's theory was only for the privileged. And in his time, the privileged meant the wealthy and the men. That you couldn't even necessarily consider what it meant to be a friend if you were not wealthy and a man. 
And yet Paul, as if he would baptize uh, this theory of friendship into the gospel, he has companions with women. He is a companion with women. Not in like some weird way, but he has close friends with women. He is close friends with those of a different category than him. He is friends and uses affectionate terms, excuse me, for those that are slaves in the time. He calls those that are under him and that are worthless to the world beloved. So how does the gospel take this and change it and transform it, even though it might be good to think about? Like, what actually defines friendships in the gospel, or what are some elements of that? Where does covenant come into play in the picture of what happens if a person leaves the covenant? Like I expressed earlier to you today, what happens if Brad and I are deep brothers in the faith, and then I decide I'm out? I don't believe in Jesus. I think it's kind of junk. It's fine. You can believe in it, but I'm out. How does that change the relational dynamic legitimately? And how does the gospel tell me how I'm supposed to be or how Brad's supposed to be in that relationship regardless if we agree on the same thing? How am I? How is Brad? How are we still supposed to carry the presence of Christ in us? And how does the love hymn of 1 Corinthians 13 speak to our friendships? Because it wasn't just uh, written to be read at marriages, right? A lot of times we hear 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings and in those places. But what does it mean for me to say that to Mike and to consider Mike Morby in that as friends? That if I'm called to love him in this way, what does that mean? Not just my wife in this way in 1 Corinthians 13 but in the people that I come in contact with. How am I supposed to love in that sense? So to end, let's go back to the scriptures. Uh, if you want to turn in your scriptures to John 15, this is the last, uh, last section here. So I do want to point out two distinctives that are interesting uh, regarding friendships. So uh, John 15 We have Jesus with the disciples, uh, with the 11 of them. Judas actually left prior to this in uh, chapter 13, verse 30. And they were in this meal, in this context with one another. And both of these have to do with the word friend. Uh, John 15, I'm just going to read, go back and read the fuller context. I'm just going to read 12, 13, 14, and 15. This is Jesus speaking. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Okay, the idea, I have called you friends, you are my friends. Now, if you want to, flip back to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This is after Jesus is praying in the garden, after this meal. Judas has left. Judas has come with a bunch of people to now take Jesus uh, and to arrest him and take him to the chief priests for some kind of trial. Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 to 50. While he was still speaking, Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. 
Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So in each of these passages, the word friend is used in the English. And yet, uh, the context around it suggests that it's definitely a different quality of friend, right? It's almost like Jesus is being a little bit passive-aggressive with Judas. You know, hey, friend, do what you came to do. I'm not saying he was, but you can get that connotation. And so in each of these passages, the word friend is used, and yet there's two different words. Both of them have the idea of companion. The idea of companion, at least in the English, means one that you share bread with. So if I'm your companion, we sit at a table, we have a meal together. We are in intimate relationship with one another. Both of these uh, Greek words have that idea, but then they split from there. That these are not the same type of friend. There's a different kind of quality to these friendships. In the John passage, Jesus uses the word philos. Philos, which means friend. And this is our more standard definition of friend. right? This is one that we think of, one that is loved, one that you hold dear. It carries the idea of kindness between one another, the idea of a kiss in a non-sexual way, that there's an intimacy that is there, philos. And it's to appropriate another person's interests unselfishly, that you are for that person, that you are for that person. But in the Matthew passage, when Jesus calls Judas friend, it's not philos. It is a different word. He uses the Greek word here, uh, hetairas. And now this word is a bit trickier. It means companion, and yet it's completely different. So this is from uh, the Greek New Testament Dictionary. It says that this word refers to comrades who were mostly followers of a chief. They were not necessarily companions for the sake of helping the chief, but for getting whatever advantage that they could. It is a person who attaches herself to another for what she can get out of the chief, a leech, It means a selfish acquaintance, one who seeks her own interests above the interests of others. Hetairas is a partner in a company, not necessarily for the good of the others, but primarily for their own advantage. The good of others is acceptable only when it promotes the well-being of that person. And so I think this highlights in the gospel this one distinct characteristic that what does it mean to be a friend to another? And that's the idea of the idea of, of compassion versus contract or the idea of compassion versus um, custom, that we're just friends out of custom. What does the word compassion mean in the English? Who knows? Kindness and pity? Empathy? If you break it down word by word, it means to suffer with. Compassion is to suffer with. That as a friend in the kingdom of God, I am going to be with you in the pain and in the brokenness and even when the relationship isn't going great. That there's not going to be these little tiny uh, contractual clauses at the end of our friendship that say, well, as long as you do this, 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 and this, we are in it together and then we're friends in the kingdom. To be a friend in the kingdom of God means to have compassion for the other person even if that person doesn't have compassion for you. 
right? Jesus calls his disciples friends. And then he says, you are my friends, you are my friends, if you do what I command you. But he's not saying, I'm a friend to you if you do what I command you. And yes, there is this mutuality in friendships, but there's going to be many times in our life, just like we see in the life of Christ, where that mutuality is not there. That somebody is suffering through something, somebody is going through hell, somebody might not want to deal with you or to be with you. That you, a person might not be a friend to you, does that mean that we are not to show compassion and suffer with them? And I would say in the kingdom of God that compassion, the idea of suffering with, is a distinct way that we are to display and we are to honor God with our friendships. Okay? And the interesting thing here is both Judas, and we'll pick on Peter here, both Judas and Peter failed as friends of Jesus. Right? Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter, I, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you. There's no way I'm going to do that three times later that's done. Peter abandons his friend. If that was us, if that was me in my flesh, I'd be like to hell with you guys. You weren't there for me. I'm not going to that cross. What am I going to this cross for? Nobody is for me here. Those that I was closest to abandoned me or betrayed me. I've done nothing wrong, and yet I'm being persecuted by the people I've come to love and to save. And yet in Christ, the compassion of God was on full display. That even when he was forsaken, he was going to lay down his life for his friends that essentially acted like strangers at best and enemies at worst because greater love has none than this, to lay down your life for another. Uh, Paul, worship team, you guys can come back up with closing thoughts. So the reality of this is that we all have been or maybe even now have are bad friends at times. There are times, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, that we weren't there for somebody when we should have been. There's a ton of times when people weren't there for us when maybe they should have been. And we can, we can become bitter and angry or whatever in that, or can, we can receive grace in those places. Right? One of the biggest differences between Judas and Peter was that Peter at least stuck in it. Judas could not take the regret. Right? He betrayed his friend. He realized what he had done and took a very serious consequence on his own life and removed himself from the scenario by hanging himself. That he didn't stay in it. He didn't stay in the darkness. He wasn't even willing to uh, stay in the suffering of his own self and deal with that. Peter also went through a ton of suffering in himself. Like, I, like I betrayed, I abandoned my best friend. But he stayed in it so that when the resurrection came, there was reconciliation with Peter. And there was uh, not only reconciliation, but there was this redemption and restoration. And that comes in light of the resurrection. And that's what the resurrection is all about. So may we as the people of God, even in the midst of suffering in our relationships, stay 
in them. In the way God would have us stay in them. Because even though death might be part of that uh, relationship and that scenario right now, is that we being a kingdom people actually enter into those places of suffering and that we suffer ourselves because Christ entered into our suffering. And Christ was compassionate and suffered with us. And in those times, we wait every single day for the dawn of Easter Sunday to come. Because we need that resurrection to happen in those relationships. But if we remove ourselves from the suffering, from the death, we're not going to get to see the resurrection. That's just a basic spiritual principle. So the Apostle Paul, with his companion Timothy, by his side, contemplating uh, his relationship with Christ, wrote this to the Philippians. He said, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. There is no resurrection without the death. And so may we be a people that enter into the suffering of other people. May we be the people that are with God in suffering as that suffering comes to us, as other people hurt us. And may we be a gospel people that are always looking for the dawn of Easter and for resurrection. Because that is what the grand narrative of Scripture is. That is what the reality of Jesus Christ is. That it is death. And it is pain, it is suffering, but it is also reconciliation and restoration and resurrection. So let's stand together as we remember this story, as we remember the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also ask the Holy Spirit, where does this death and resurrection need to play out in my life with my relationships that I'm either close to or that have been uh, uh, cut apart in the past? If I could read a passage of Scripture over you as a benediction. Uh, This comes from Hebrews, the end of Hebrews. Uh, It's something that's been on my mind for a while, but for me to say this at Cornerstone seems a little self-serving for me to say this because it's about uh, having confidence in your leaders. So for me to get up in front of Cornerstone and be, have confidence in me, is a little self-serving, but I want to bless you with the word of God to you, Parker Ford, but receive it too. It's this great companionship of both... uh, working together in the kingdom of God. It says this, it says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. He goes on to say, pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. And now, Parker Ford, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for having me today. It was good to worship with you and to not have to like think about the whole service and just to be here with you and to give the word. So thank you for having me. Go with God.